I think so. You think so? Maybe. <laughs> I expect you to be ready. Uh, I'm glad you have expectations. <laughs> they're low expectations, quality, but they're yeah. expectations nonetheless. I was dressed when you got to my house. That day, yeah, that's a, that's a big plus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Michael Moore, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. You just call it faith in unsubstantiated claims That's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist Coming at you from the Baby Buffet This is Left of the Valley My name is Kevin and I live in a one-way street That's also a dead end I'm not sure I got there Join me as usual is a team that wonders If the queen whips out a $20 bill When she's asked for ID She's asked a $20 bill what? When she's asked for an ID Oh <laughs> That would be great I mean you could just pull out You know any money at all And say here I am Here I am <laughs> See me there I like that She took a course in speed waiting She can wait an hour and ten minutes Nancy Oh wow. <laughs> That's impressive That is impressive mm, Impressive and she wonders if you shoot a mime, do you need a silencer? <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, since they're already already silent, I'm gonna go with no. <laughs> you know, I, I'm starting to think that I'm starting to depict you as a violent person. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I feel like I get that all the time. I'm so sorry. I didn't need to do that. Is it because I'm just I'm such a physically intimidating human being? No, we love you, dear. I know just you. Love to tease you too. <laughs> Ladies, welcome back. He just likes to give us a hard time to start the show off, put us in our place, and hopes we, he hopes we put stay you in there. your place. Uh-huh. Everybody does oh, that yeah. to me. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. I could just go in the archives. We'll see how many times bash Kevin. Time. I know it doesn't. It, it, it never works. <laughs> Remember, we even had Robert Stanley say, "Wow, everybody's picking on Kevin right now." <laughs> Guys, welcome back. Um, today we'll be talking to your old friend, Daryl Ray. Oh, always We fun. love Daryl Ray. Yeah, we uh, sure do. And we'll be talking about why people cheat. That'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not at cards, by the way. <laughs> Damn. But first, let's do a bit of chit-chat. We got lots to go through. Uh, did you guys follow football a bit? No. No? Did you guys hear that the NFL is uh, going to be issuing fines for kneeling? Yes. You know what Colin Kaepernick decided to start kneeling yeah. for protesting pro- police yeah. brutality in the States? Well, the NFL decided now they're going to fine. I believe it's the teams they're going to fine for, for the players that are kneeling. Yeah. Did you hear what Trump said today? He no. said, if you if you don't want to stand for the um, the anthem, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to live here. Yeah. And speaking of the U.S. Okay. Because, you know, nothing says freedom like being forced to stand under a penalty of being fine, right? Yeah, <laughs> the I, land so of free. the free. Much freedom. <laughs> I, I keep thinking uh, um, there's got to be a constitutional or free speech, even though it's a private company, they're depriving 
people of expressing their point of view. They're, they're locking, not locking, but the, the players have to stay off the field in the dressing room or locker room, you know, until it's over and then come out. It's a punishment. And yet I don't think there's anything um, that says you have to stand. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tradition yeah, I think you so. know, of respect, but there isn't any anything where someone is punished by not standing. I wonder what happens if the uh, if the public in, in general, just the the, the the civilians, the watchers, the people that come and see the games, start doing that. And then what happens? Yeah, I, I have I have no I have no idea. I just wonder whether the uh, ACLU is going to weigh in with this. I haven't haven't seen anything. The yet. land of the free, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, for, for for Trump to do that and then. You know, I guess it was a tweet or something, as I saw it on the news, to say if you're not willing to stand during the anthem, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to live here. Uh, when, when did this? You know, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess it's it's rapidly becoming a dictatorship, oh. drip by drip by drip. Yeah, that, that's a, some se- <laughs> that I'm surprised. That, I'm surprised the U.S. did not just erupt when he said that. The the, the whole country should have said, "Say what?" <laughs> he don't. I uh, that that line would not even pass muster here in Canada. Imagine in the U.S. that people should have been down the street with this. But hey, yeah, and and I was listening. I think last week, when uh, one of the news reporters said um, that there are two kinds of Republicans in the party: those that are supporting Trump and the others who are cowering in the corner. Mm, yeah. So they're not going to say anything. I think so too. Moving on, um, North Korea. Uh, the summit was uh, canceled. Mm-hmm. By Trump again. Uh, the funny thing is, uh, King Kim Jong Un actually said he's actually willing to talk with the U.S. Well, he wasn't the one that wrote the breakup letter. Trump, <laughs> yeah. Trump was. It, it seems it seems the U.S. And, and North Korea are worlds apart on what needs to be done here. Uh, <laughs> the one thing that could have saved Trump's presidency from the debacle that it is would have been. Actually, an agreement with North Korea, but now it seems that it's not going to happen. Well, it could have saved his presidency for about three and a half seconds. I mean, he, <laughs> Till he know, tweeted something it, stupid again? Of course. You know, he's, he's, he's not going to let a, a little bit of success ruin his path to defeat. <laughs> you know? Come on now. The Uh-oh. interesting thing, too, is that, um, you know, there was a medal that was struck commemorating yes. and they put it on sale it was like yeah they, they they had, like a coin right they had the coin they had two coins i think one was 250 bucks but they put the 24.95 one on sale for 1995 <laughs> but that's not the real the event one. that never happened the event that never happened commemorate the event that never happened yeah and and, <laughs> and, and whose pocket was that money going to go into i mean was you know, was it a Trump a Trump special? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. It's <laughs> a bit like Trump University, right? The education that never got there. Right? Yeah, I mean, it gets it gets to be a better better book or a worse movie every week. Oh, we'll be talking about this for the next twenty years. Yeah. Um, I, I like uh, something nasty happened in Burlington, Ontario. Uh, there was a toddler three that was left in a car, and in a hot car, and he died of hyperthermia. Uh, he was found outside a complex which houses a faith-based TV network. Oh, man. Yeah. God. The temperature reached 27 degrees Celsius outside the car, obviously. I hate, I and, hate and, You know, shit. we see these sad, sad stories every year. For Christ's sake, people, stop doing that. It's, that, it's so bloody freaking obvious. 
Uh, it, it, it's obvious to those of us who have brains. Uh, how like, do you forget? How do you forget your own child? Well, yeah. in a hot car. I mean, you know how, or how do you just like willingly be like, "All right, you stay here. I'll be back in like twenty minutes." Yeah, yeah. yeah. As soon as like, you say that, I'll be right back. Right there. That should just red flag. So no, <laughs> just, like you don't leave your kids in the car. You don't leave your pets in the car. You don't leave. You don't leave anybody in a hot car. Exactly. You shouldn't be sitting in the hot car. That's why you find shade. But even then, like, if it's a hot day, do not, like, even, I know when I used to take pigs in with my grandpa and when it was the really hot days, or even recently when it was really hot, three of them were just so hot, we had to bottle feed them water just to get them out of the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and we were moving the whole time. Let's hope people are, are starting to understand this because this this is really it's tragic when you see something like that. And it happens every year. I don't think there's a year. summer that goes by that there aren't at least two of those horrible stories. It'd be nice to actually see you know that and a kid drowning in a pool. Oh okay. yeah. Uh, okay. We've already had one of those in BC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Despite the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, leaving the U.K., France, and Germany to basically salvage the plan, Iran is still, compl- is still complying with the, uh, the the U.N. guidelines. That's going to be pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. The uh, Iranian leader is asking for European ba- uh, banks to safeguard trade with Iran. Um, is this a sign that maybe the European Union is turning its back on the U.S.? You know, the, the, I, I can't you. I can't really speak knowledgeably because it's such a complex. It is complex. I can't keep. I can't keep all. I can keep the players fairly straight, but I can't keep all of the different um, maneuvering. Yes. You know, um, straight in my mind to, to even make a make a comment. It's going to be very interesting to watch. I see if the European banks yeah. do decide to say, well, you know what, our uh, our, par- our our trading with Iran is actually more valuable. And especially now that Trump is no longer viewed as much of an ally, it's going to be very interesting to see what what happens there. Yeah, well, I th- it's going to be interesting in a horrible way the the cumulative effect of him shredding every single deal mm-hmm. apart. You know, every every week there's a new deal uh, that's that he is rescinding, that he's you know overriding, yes. that he's neglect. It's just awful and it leaves all of our allies dancing around you know what what can we depend upon what can't we depend upon and that's if they decide for example the, the european banks decide to back iran and the trades that are doing with europe right now then if the it puts a, a huge stick in the wheel of the u.s who's been eyeing to attack iran or finding an excuse to do so mm-hmm. because now all of a sudden europe is going to go wait a minute you know, Iran might be a bit of a bastard child, but we're still trading with them. You can't just attack them willy-nilly. So, <laughs> this no, but is, isn't isn't Bolton one of the ones that would love yeah. to willy-nilly attack? Them? Bolton would like to he's attack got everybody. The, he's got the willy-nilly. He should attack. He should attack a razor blade but, and shoot yeah, a mustache of his. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, this is uh, this is almost a story that should have been in uh, another brilliant moment. But uh, in in the Congo, there's an Ebola alert, right? And they've been having some. Outbreaks here and there. <sighs> Two patients were taken out of the hospital, and this is in the worst phase they're at. You know, they're puking, they're sneezing, they're vomiting. Like the worst phase where they, they're really contagious, and they're taken to a prayer meeting with 50 plus people. Mm. Slow clap, guys. 
Slow mm-hmm. clap. So Doctor Without Borders reported that both of them died soon after. Well, no shit, right? <laughs> oh. You know, the prayer didn't work. Big surprise. This is the ninth outbreak and has been uh, 22 dead so far in this one. Uh, <laughs> There's just, there are no words. No, no, exactly, exactly. So, I, and now, now, of course, these 50 people that were in that prayer meeting, you might have 50 more infected now. Yep. And it's like, oh, yeah, prayer. It saved everybody, didn't it? Oh, it sure did. <laughs> I think it saved them from life and hastened death. I think that's what oh. the, the prayer did. Well, speaking of plagues, uh, Donald Trump uh, <laughs> called Canada, quote, very difficult to deal with and very spoiled. Yeah. Are we spoiled? Oh, of course. We, are, oh, yeah. we believe in democracy. We believe in free speech. We believe in keeping our word once we give it to our allies. Yeah. We're very spoiled. And we have maple syrup. Oh, yeah. We have stronger beer. Yeah. yeah you were so spoiled. And you like poutine. <laughs> <laughs> I can make a mean poutine. That's how spoiled we are. Don't let Christina hear you say that or you'll always be making her poutine. <laughs> I could probably make you one, you guys one one day. Uh, this, of course, is a, uh, a tactic from uh, people who are thinking it's a bullying tactic for NAFTA because they're in negotiation with NAFTA right now. And it's like, this, you know, this is the, the same guy that went to our prime minister and says, yeah, yeah, we have a trade deficit with Canada. When it was actually, and he admitted later on that he had no idea. Uh-huh. And he just said that willy-nilly. And uh-huh. the prime minister went and says, no, no, you actually have a surplus here. And his own staff was telling him the same thing. But, you know, this is like, hey, ah, anyway. And, and the more he gets rid of his staff, the more he gets rid of people who have historical backgrounds and knowledge about what's actually going on. Yes. And then he replaces these people with, you know, horrible um, incompetence. So there, where's, the, where's the real news anymore? Where's the real facts? That's true. And last but not least, this one made me smile. There's a study that finds you when you, who you hate depends on your intelligence. Really? Oh. Yes. There was a study done by uh, 5,914 subjects by social psychologists Mark Brandt and uh, Jared Crawford. And their conclusion is if you have low cognitive ability, you have a tendency to hate groups who... Uh, who have a low choice in their status. For example, uh, you'll hate people depending on their sex, their race, their wealth, something they have no choice on. You have a tendency <laughs> to hate those. But if you have a high cognitive ability, uh, you might hate more groups that are considered conventional or conservatives. Mm. No shit, Sherlock! Yeah. You know? <laughs> mm. Big surprise. Big surprise. You know, the dumbass conservatives are the one hating the, 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 the people that are, they're being racist. You know, this is not a surprise to me at all. This is exactly what we've been seeing on the political spectrum for ages now. Well, I mean, it's, 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 when when they hate on that basis, it's so much easier to do fear-mongering. Yeah. And, and the fear-mongering works on the same... Same category of people. So. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, anyway, <laughs> I thought it was an interesting study. <sighs> so, my dear Nancy, you got a top ten for us? I do. Perfect. This is, this is a fun one, I hope. We'll know at the end, for sure. Okay. It's always a fun one. It's, this, is, this is from a website called Gizmodo, Ooh. and it's called Whoops! 
the 10 greatest accidental inventions of all time. Oh, I Ooh. love these. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to love this. <laughs> okay, so um, there really isn't any any order. I mean, they've numbered them 1 through 10, but I really couldn't see as I went through them. So I'm just going to go okay. through them 1 through 10, and then you can tell me maybe at the end which one you think was the, the greatest. Okay, the first one was an invention by Percy L. Spencer. Ooh. And boy, do we ever know his name and got T-shirts, you know, with his <laughs> picture and all that kind of stuff. Because Percy Spencer was an engineer at Raytheon. And after his World War II stint in the Navy, he was kind of an electronics genius. And in 1945, he's fiddling with a microwave-emitting magnetron. And those were used in the guts of radar. Um, arrays. And all of a sudden he felt a strange sensation in his pocket of his pants. No, don't say anything yet. <laughs> and it was like a sizzling. And so he stopped and there was a I get chocolate feeling bar. Often. There was a chocolate bar in his pocket that started to melt. And so he's a researcher. He's not going to let that you know, go by without a little extra attention. And so he thought, gee, maybe the microwave radiation of the magnetron was to blame or credit. And sure enough, he set out to realize that there was a, a, a cooking potential at work and with a little work and a little refinement and yada, 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 microwave ovens, savior mm. to eager snackers yes. and single dudes. So the microwave was... Uh, Interesting. You know, if the chocolate bar had not been in his pocket, do you think we'd have the microwave today? Probably That's not. That's a big question. Because, I mean, if you if you think about it, who would go to be like, hmm, what's a way that I can... What what can I make to make the food faster? Yeah. Yeah. Or like, heat, reheat the food faster. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And this was something, you know, totally, oh my gosh, I'm melting. <laughs> so, interesting. Okay. Number two. This is kind of fun. 1879. Mm-hmm. Two guys, Ira Remsen and Constantine Falberg, were in a laboratory at Johns Hopkins University and they took a break to eat. And Falberg had neglected to wash his hands before the meal, which usually leads to, you know, quick death for most chemists. But all of a sudden he noticed that there was something oddly sweet during his meal. I guess he was eating with his hands maybe a sandwich or something like that. Well, they had been working with coal tar and one of the things that, that one of the chemicals that they had been working with was benzoic sulfamide. Don't ask me what that is. I'm just reading this stuff. But they, these, it turned out that what that benzoic sulfamide was was artificial sweetener. Mm. So the duo published their findings together but Falberg was a was a real um, a nasty guy, and so he took credit for everything. Ow. So now oh. Falberg's name is on the um, on the the, uh, the saccharin as the the inventor, and then poor poor Mr. Remsen really got screwed, and he later said, Falberg is a scoundrel. It nauseates me to hear my name mentioned in the same breath with him. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the 18... Did you, I never, did you ever think that saccharin really came from the 1800s? No, rather? no. I, I didn't even I thought it was that. a fairly recent event. Yeah, I did too. That was a real surprise. Um, number three, 
1943, Navy engineer Richard James is trying to figure out how to use springs to keep sensitive instruments aboard ships from rocking themselves to death when he knocked one of his prototypes over. And instead of crashing to the floor, it just sort of gracefully sprang downward. And right, yeah, you got it? It's the slinky. The slinky. Yeah. It was so pointless, but it was so cute. Yeah, still buy slinkies. Oh yeah, you totally get. Yeah, it it really it it was right after World War II, and it became a goofy toy. And um, every kid usually gets theirs all twisted up and ruins it in about fifteen minutes. But while they last, they're cute. The three hundred million, over three hundred million. My God, I had a rainbow one. Did you? (laughs) I did. Okay, see see if you see if you figure this one out. Um, before being found ground into the rugs of child rearing homes, Play-Doh mm. was ironically created to be a cleaning product. What? It, it, it was a paste that was first marketed as a treatment for filthy wallpaper, and then the company that produced it started to go down the tubes, and uh, they discovered that the guy um, in this company, Kutal Products, it was headed for bankruptcy, and they realized that the wall cleaner didn't work particularly well, but the kids were beginning to use it in their in their homes to create little Christmas ornaments and arts and crafts. Mm-hmm. And people realized this paste was no good for cleaning, but it was a lot of fun to mold. And so they added um, uh, color to it and sold it as Play-Doh and mega success to the company heading mm-hmm. for destruction. Now, my question is, it was invented as a uh, remedy for filthy wallpaper? Filthy wallpaper. What the hell is that? You don't know what wallpaper. Well, is? I know what wallpaper. Well, oh. What does that mean? Filthy wallpaper. It's just well, dirty. Yeah, it gets it gets dirty. You know, like when you have um, in the old days, wallpaper. You had radiators, and and it would stain. And then you had different. Oh. Uh, you had kids that would write on the wallpaper. Pretty sure you still have kids that stains. do that. <laughs> yeah, so you you got to clean the wallpaper without oh, okay. tearing. Oh, okay. I get it. Okay, so you kind of like stick it on and like yeah, it, peel it, it off, kind of. Yeah. Well, the wallpaper's on there, you know, it's it's pasted oh, yeah. on there, but once you ripped it, you can't find another panel. It's, it pays to be an old person and remember these. <laughs> now that I've educated you all, no, I, th- I thought I thought it meant, they meant more like you know, rip off the wallpaper and replace it with. Like a plaster play doh or something like that. That's yeah, that's where no, I was they, in my mind we're going. No, but if, as a cleaner, that's something. As a cleaner, like clean it. I guess it came in a little, con- you know, screw on, bo- you know, container, yeah. and then you you'd clean it. But it's like it just, the Mr. Clean Magic Eraser. Thing. Yeah, exactly. There, you, boy, that could have been the forerunner of yeah, exactly. Magic. I like that one better. That's a good one. Okay, here we go. Harry Coover, I'm giving all of these inventors all the, you know, uh, 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 all the PR. Yeah. A little bit late. Um, so Harry Coover, Dr. Harry Coover, 1942, Eastman Kodak Laboratories found out that a substance he created was a failure because it, it, it was so infuriating, it stuck to everything it touched. So they didn't know what to do with it, so they put it on the shelf, forgot about it, and then six years later, a, a new experiment was going on for airplane canopies, and Coover found himself stuck with this gooey mess, and he he, he didn't know what to do with it <laughs> still, but he thought, well, maybe there would be some 
use for it. And he observed this time around that it created a really strong bond without needing heat. So it was gooey, it was sticky, but it didn't need a, a bond and it didn't need heat. And so he and his team tinkered with it and uh, put various things together to see if they would stay together. And voila, it was a use for this goop. And he slapped a patent on it in 1958, 16 years after he got stuck with it. Um, it was being sold on the shelf. So that one took a while, 16 years. Yeah. But at first it was just, the, you know, it stuck their hands, it stuck this, and it was mm-hmm. miserable. But then, aha, it can bond, you know, it different sticks more than just paper. hands. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Number six, Roy Plunkett. Wonderful name for an inventor. Um, next time you, you make a, an omelet in a... Um, in a pan that is, um, um, what do you call it, um, stick, uh, stick-free. Non-stick. Roy Plunkett developed Teflon. He had actually been working with CVCs and refrigerants, and he um, put in a, um, a canister of gas in a, a, a container, and uh, uh, he found that when he opened the container, the gas wasn't there, but there was some some silly white stuff at the bottom and he was intrigued thank goodness he was intrigued by the little chemical white bits and began to experiment with them rather than saying oh this is a failure what happened to the gas so the new substance proved to be a fantastic lubricant and also had a high melting point and voila non-stick cookware that mm. came teflon the name comes is it's a shortened form of the chemicals that went into it, but I'm not going to... I'll just stick yeah, to that's, the that's It was shortened for a reason. Okay, here, yeah, here <laughs> that's we go. Right. Here's, in 1907, shellac was commonly used to insulate the innards of early electronics, like radios and telephones, um, and it was fine, but shellac was made from Asian beetle poop, and it wasn't <laughs> very cheap, and it wasn't a good way to insulate things, and a Belgian chemist found instead was a hugely long chemical name that nobody's ever going to be able to pronounce, but it was the world's first synthetic plastic known as Bakelite. Have you ever heard of Bakelite? No. All of the vintage things that you see that are radios and even jewelry and um, utensils, before plastic became available, it was all Bakelite. So in, in vintage, when you see the vintage radios with their beautiful, usually they're brown, you know, and they're very mm-hmm. shiny. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. And jewelry, they're um, very, they're, um, at, at this point, they're, they're, they're worth quite a bit of money if they're in good shape because mm-hmm. it lasted. It was really, really good stuff. And then plastics came and... Um, you know, that that was the end of Bakelite. But it was early, early form of that. Anybody that wants to look, just look up vintage Bakelite and you'll see some really lovely uh, uh, articles that are very, very artistically done because the way it could be molded. So that's a, another little, little history you know about Bakelite. Um, number eight, the pacemaker, which was invented by a guy named Wilson Great Batch. Don't you love These that are some name? Great, great names. Great batch, yeah. 
I love that name. Anyway, he was an assistant professor at the University of Buffalo, and um, he was uh, thinking about ohm resistors and how they worked, and he developed a, a circuit by accident that produced a signal that sounded for 1.8 milliseconds and then paused, and he realized that that was a dead ringer for how the human heart worked. So he uh, fiddled with the, the current and then regulated the pulse. And uh, before that point, pacemakers were television sized, but he managed to get it down into a, a very small little monitor size. And then pacemakers were television size? Pardon? Pacemakers were television size. They, they were like tele- yeah, they were outside the body because they couldn't be miniaturized. But he he understood how, that miniaturizing the circuit, you know, at a at a particular wave, he, he could uh, use it as an as an implant, and that's that's and how. This it, is how the Teletubby started. Yeah, but it, <laughs> they all have pacemakers. Yeah, now pacemakers are are pretty well routine, but they were but. It was a great batch that, that did the miniaturization. Mm-hmm. Crazy thing oh. that they used to be the size of a television. Yeah. Well, you know, when you, but, but think about when computers were first invented yeah. and they took up rooms. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. you got, you know, you got tablets yeah, and you got phones. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think most most electronics started out, you know, huge because there weren't the there uh, so chips much. and resistant mm-hmm. resistors and all those things that that go into it. Okay, moving right along, two more to go. Velcro hmm. invented by a dog. By a dog. Uh, invented by a dog. Well, it's a little exaggeration, but the dog did play an instrumental role. There was a Swiss engineer, George de Mestral, and he was out for a hunting trip with his dog and noticed the annoying tendency of burrs to mm-hmm. stick yes. to the dog's fur and to his socks. So he looked under a microscope and he saw that the tiny little hooks that stuck burrs to fabrics and furs, and he thought, hmm, maybe I can do something with these. And he experimented for years with a lot of different textiles, and voila, a newly invented nylon. But it wasn't until two decades later that NASA's fondness for Velcro popularized it. So that was that was how that... So thank you, Pooches, everywhere, for contributing to the technology of today. Cool. I love those kind of stories. Yeah. Last one, and um, those of you who have listened to our broadcast for the last four years will will recognize this one as very familiar. William Wrenchin, the X-ray machine. Oh, ah, nice. X-rays um, uh, were in 1895, and William Wrenchin was performing a routine experiment uh, using cathode rays when he noticed that a piece of fluorescent cardboard was lighting up from across the room. A thick screen had been placed between the cathode emitter and the radiated cardboard, and that proved to him that particles of light were passing through solid objects. And he was really amazed, but he was a smart guy and quickly found that the images could be produced with uh, this incredible type of radiation, the first of their kind being a skeletal image of his wife's hand. Yes. So thank you to the wife's hand and the, the dog that went on the hunting trip. We have <laughs> we have two great inventions. Yes. Anyway, so yes. there we are. There, there's a lot of these inventions yeah. that you know, in, incredibly enough, are you know, uh, 
out of the blue, you know. I remember, I forget the name of the inventor, but, you know, uh, our windshields. Yeah. You know, when your windshield gets smashed, it, it kind of just ripples. It doesn't break like glass. Yeah. And that was not that was a mistake, too, because he was the inventor was actually working with a, a clear polymer. And he dropped his beaker. Oh. And when it hit the ground, it shattered like that, but never actually fell apart. Oh. And, yeah, and the, today this is what we use for windshields, right? There's a ton of things like that. I love accidental inventions. Yes. Just, yeah, everybody. I, you, I mean, you, how, how can... It, the, the, the accidental part is phenomenal, but the person who looks at it and yes. says, what can I do with this? You how know, can I make money off this? How, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. Yeah, but, but even so, it's, it's usually the mind of the inventor you know, at that, that moment, even though some of these take 16 years to come to fruition, it's it, it works out. I just took a look at the Bakelite, like you were saying there. I, I I had no idea. I thought, you know, I've seen this shiny Bakelite, like you said, you know, in many antiques. I thought it was just plastic. Yeah. I never, ever, ever thought it was just, uh, it was just pl- old plastic from back then, you know. Yeah. I had no idea it was actually a different substance altogether. Oh yeah. yeah, there were some beautiful things that were made. Yeah, absolutely. In the, some of the stuff the I'm 20s, looking at there. The twenties, the thirties, and the forties, and then after the after the forties, the plastics it came about. But there's a, there's an elegance to the to the bakelite. Yeah, I think, there's something the plastics. Looking at all these images, wow, well, it's, yeah. it's pretty impressive. Yeah. All right, my dear Kirsten, you have a, another brilliant moment for us. I do. <clears throat> all right, first up. Rodney Howard Brown says those who criticize his holy laughter revival are going to hell. Wait, wait, wait. Holy laughter revival? Holy laughter. What the hell is a holy laughter revival? I'll get to that in a minute, Kevin. (laughs) I'm laughing already. Rodney Howard Brown is a right-wing pastor and radical conspiracy theorist who laid hands upon and prayed over President Trump in the Oval Office last year and is probably best known for leading a so-called Holy Laughter Revival in Florida in the the 1990s. Over the course of several several weeks, Howard Brown led multiple church services during which attendees were reportedly so overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit that they collapsed into fits of uncontrollable laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Some Christian critics have declared that this revival was nothing more than hearsay, and Howard Brown lashed out at them recently, warning that they are going to hell for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, when you see one of these preachers in action, you can't help but laugh at it, too. So I can understand how this holy laughter thing, that's probably what happened. These people are just looking at this, oh, look at this moron, and just collapse laughing. (laughs) During a recent appearance on a podcast... Howard Brown was asked how he deals with the complete jackals who criticize his holy laughter revival, and he responded by warning his critics about the unpardonable sin mentioned by Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus warns that any sin can be forgiven except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which Howard Brown asserted is exactly what his critics are doing. Well, hold on. Hold hold on there. So, So... People are criticizing him, but he calls that blasphemy yeah, against because, the Holy Spirit. Because, uh, yeah. Maybe he has a very high opinion of himself. I, I, I guess so. Uh, there's holy... La- so are there degrees of this, like evangelical giggles? 
<laughs> and you work up to, you know, the holy laugh. The holy laugh. No, no, I wasn't laughing. I was just snickering. I'm just snickering. Snickering. <laughs> Maybe that's not as blasphemous. If you're just snickering, that's not as blasphemous. You've got to work through the stages. Yes, exactly. It's not the laughing that's the problem here. It's people, other people are criticizing his holy laughter. That critics right. So he's saying that like this holy laughter thing is all like good and like right. this is his thing and other people are just like no man no. So so if you if you if you're there in the congregation and during the holy laughter ceremonies and all that and you send a text saying LOL is that blasphemy too? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's blasphemy. It might just be modern. Okay. If it's L A L M A O, that that's might be yeah, close maybe, to blasphemy. Maybe <laughs> that might be. And he says, "That's a full blown attack on the Holy Spirit." I'm telling you right now, they're blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, "Whatever is said against me will be forgiven. Whatever is said against my Father will be forgiven. But whatever is said against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, oh. not in this world or the world to come." Dum, dum, dum. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of a demon spirit, Howard Brown added. I feel very sorry for some people because when they cross over into eternity, they're going to realize that they crossed so many lines. Mm. Jesus used to baptize in the Holy Spirit, he said. So anyone who attacks the Holy Spirit and his movings and his workings are antichrist. They are attacking the very ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> uh, that, that is so convoluted. <laughs> By the time you, you get through that, I guess you can be thrown. I guess I can throw you out of church then if you don't laugh. I guess or, so. or if it's not holy. What about unholy? Is there such a thing as unholy laughter? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's a, yeah, if you do a low tone, <laughs> that's unholy laughter. <laughs> but it's not blasphemous, though. No. I don't think the devil condemns you if you laugh at him. Yeah. I think he'll probably just start laughing with you. <laughs> uh, All right, moving on. If there's, if there's a way for, for the evangelicals to make you feel guilty about something, they'll find a way. <laughs> just, ha-ha, that's the end. Oh, yes. That's fine. Oh, Chris, that's, that's great, Kirsten. That's just great. <laughs> Holy laughter. Yeah. Right up there with uh, the grave sucking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Paul McGuire. Trump is under spiritual attack from Luciferian advanced beings who control the world. Well, of course, we all know that. No, of, oh, course. Yeah, of course. Trump's always under attack, right? Yeah. That's his motto. <laughs> During an appearance on Jim Baker's television program, End Times author Paul McGuire declared that the attacks on President Trump are a sign that America is in the greatest spiritual battle in the history of all mankind. Whoa! McGuire doubled down on that assertion on his radio program on Tuesday, insisting that a, spiritu- a spiritual war is being waged against Trump by Luciferian advanced beings who use supernatural multidimensional power to control the world. Superior multidimensional power. Wait, wait, go, go over that one again. Luciferian, that, that's a beautiful, t- don't don't rush that. that. That has a lot of poetry to it. What is a Luciferian what? Luciferian advanced beings who use supernatural multidimensional power to control the world. Wow. I want that on a t-shirt. I, yeah. I take front and back. Or I have Luciferian a- powers that, yeah. <laughs> and I can attack you through multidimensional whatever. Yeah, I, 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 with flames, I want one of those. Yeah, I want supernatural multi-dimensional t-shirt idea. powers. T-shirt idea. Yeah. Go fund me. 
the unprecedented attacks against President Trump and his administration are something that we've never seen before in all of human history, he said. These unprecedented attacks on Donald Trump are part of the greatest spiritual battle in the history of mankind. The physical battles that we see in our world and nation right now are a direct manifestation of the spiritual battles going on in the invisible realm, McGuire added. I only get attacked by the best. Only the best attack me. And only the best, evil, more spiritual people attack me. (laughs) There are people very high up in what is called the globalist occult or globalist Luciferian rulership system. And this rulership system consists of what used to be called the Pharaoh God Kings. Wait a minute. I thought this was a flat earth. I'm going to be globalist. what Aldous Huxley called the scientific dictatorship and these are advanced beings who know how to tap into supernatural multi-dimensional power and integrate it with science technology and economics well hold on a second wait a minute what's the difference between this and Scientology doesn't it sound like like they've crossed the line that's it Tom Cruise is attacking Donald Trump I get it I totally get it now but they, they they, they, they talk about the science dictatorship but at the same time, they're talking about advanced being that I can know. use science technology to travel through. It's like, it's like it's like we hate science, but they're ad- we admit they're advanced beings somehow. Oh yeah, they're more advanced than us. It's like okay, they're kind of running around in circles around themselves, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. It's like we prefer to be stupid. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just in the Old or New Testament. <laughs> it's in the uh, the the uh, Bible 2.0. <laughs> That's coming coming soon to a bookstore near you. <laughs> I think you're right. Then it goes on. There are people at the highest level of the pyramidic organizational structure in which the highest ranking officers, if you will, of the New World Order and Mystery Babylon are ruling the earth through an organizational structure that looks like the pyramid on the back of the U.S. dollar, he stated. (laughs) And they control the world because they understand that the true control of the world is done through supernatural mechanisms. I don't. I don't want to drink what he's drinking. I, yeah, I don't I, want to drink what he's drinking either. <laughs> there, there, there's not enough acid to, no. <laughs> to to go that deep. You know, he just Great went. Imagination. He though. just went full Pat Robertson. Never he, go full Pat Robertson. He just went oh. that way, didn't he? <laughs> oh. It's out there. Okay, extra that, I mean, dimensional that, beings. I, that's just. It's beautiful and it's it's fantasy. You know. Don't you it, wish you could like, somehow just pop the back of his head open and put like a lens and project the movie that goes on in his brain onto the oh, wall. Oh, it would be yeah. fantastic. Oh, oh, that would be yeah. so great. It'd be absolutely fantastic. We need to go fund a- me for that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Go fund me. <laughs> right. What, now, is it, what is his name so that we don't forget him? It is Paul McGuire. Paul McGuire. That name's going to go down. Wait a minute. Paul McGuire, Scientology, Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise. There's the link. Oh, is it like a ding? Three degrees. Three degrees, separate, degrees of Tom Cruise. <laughs> oh, oh, Kirsten, oh. you are good at this, girl. Mm. <laughs> I try. Oh, okay. All right. Got one last story here. It's a little bit different. This one actually has a bit of a happier note. It's more of a oh what's the word it's more cheerful it is a little bit more cheerful it's kind of sad what it came out of 
but I'm happy that there is something being done and something good is coming out of this and something's actually okay. happening against the religious things. Um, as some of you may know, earlier this month, we learned that administrators in the North Bend School District in Oregon were accused of wildly discriminatory practices against LGBTQ students. Yes. In particular, forcing them to read the Bible as punishment. That is a cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. <laughs> forcing to read the Bible. Yeah. Those allegations have now been confirmed, and some of the people responsible are now out of their jobs. And it's Yay! all because two students in particular were willing to speak up. So, according to the ACLU of Oregon, they told one of our clients she was going to hell for being gay, subjected LGBTQ students to harsher discipline than their straight peers, and equated homosexuality with bestiality. We also learned that both LGBTQ students and straight students have been forced to recite Bible passages as a punishment. Was this a private school, a public school, do you know? I am not yeah. sure. I mean, it's just, it, it amazes me sometimes the, the cruelty level of some teachers, you know, when they're, when they're, they're put and these children are in their care and they're supposed to do everything they can yeah. to, to educate them, to bring out the best possible personalities, to make them confident and, you know, be able to negotiate the world, you know, with some intelligence and, mm-hmm. and grace and, and beauty and all that kind of stuff. And they, they grind them into the ground. Yeah, and, and you know, you make him read the Bible. There's so many unanswered questions and plot holes in that book. I was like, no, this is so cruel. I don't know what to think anymore. Yeah, I mean, What happened to the snake in the tree? And- <laughs> I mean, the fact that those teachers felt that they that that they were that it was approved to do that yeah. that it was perfectly okay within that school system to do that. It, that's horrific. Oh, it is. And I'm glad they got caught. And yes. I hope they never teach again. Oh, they absolutely did. They they get you know they open up the back of their minds <laughs> and put in put in a reality chip. Good luck with that. Yeah. Two of the students at at North Bend High School, seniors Liv Funk and Haley Smith, both awesome names, I thought. Yeah. Brought these problems to the attention of a counselor, and that in turn helped them or with led to help from Willamette Law School's legal clinic, which later brought the case to Oregon the Oregon Department of Education. And then the DOE sent a letter to District Superintendent Bill Yester back in March detailing their findings and calling for reform within the district. Which didn't materialize. Well, at least kudos to the counselor for not Just toting the line in the school and actually going out there and saying, look, look this is Yeah, wrong. it sounds like a really courageous yeah, person exactly. that was going yeah. against maybe the prevailing uh, attitude uh, Well, the, I, school district. The article doesn't seem to say if this was really a, a whole school thing or if it was just that couple of teachers that did that, right? Yeah, it seems like it might have been a little bit. Um, there is another article that is quite a bit longer. Um, this is the second article detailing with something mm-hmm. that has happened since then. Cool. Um, Although, because things didn't materialize with that, it led to some serious consequences for both the school principal, Bill Acerno, and the school resource officer, Jason Griggs, who are being fired. Thank you. The principal. Thank you. So the principal. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it was a school yeah. thing then. Yeah. Hmm. Well, he must have approved it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, wow. So. Well, that's good news. It's good news that the action was taken and those oh, kids were vindicated. Absolutely. I'm. That's yeah. one of the things where I'm like, it's a little bit different, but I want to show that there is a little bit of hope here. Yeah. Yeah. Was the? Did you mention that was the ACLU? I lost track. Of, was the ACLU involved in in that one? They're yes. really good about. That. Yes, they were. Okay. Um, and Evil then, ACLU. Oh, man. And then Matt DeSantos, legal director for the ACLU. There you go. Says that the settlement sends a clear message to everyone at the district. If you break the law by discriminating against LGBTQ students, there are serious consequences. Oh, they they are today's heroes in every every possible way. And on top of that, those two being fired... The high school will also be required to work with the ACLU to implement training and policies aimed at preventing future discrimination. Oh, you're right. That is a cheerful, that is a positive I outlook. know. Like, yeah. there's quite a bit of good stuff coming out of this one. Yeah. And maybe, and, it, maybe it will deter other um, individuals within other school I think districts. that's a little bit of yeah. the hope here, yeah. Yeah. And then, while... Well, much of the media attention focused on how gay students may have had to read the Bible as punishment... There's a little bit here on Funk and Smith's story, so you can get a sense of just how bad things actually were. Like, that wasn't even... That was the main media t- focus, but there was a lot more going on. Yeah. And the Bible as a book, just as a book, not even as a so-called holy book, just as a book itself, is so poorly written. It is so dry. It is so horrible. Just that. Just that itself is just, like, the worst punishment you can think oh, of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Funk says she was subject to anti-gay slurs by multiple students, including the principal's son, physically assaulted and told by a school police officer that she's going to hell. Oh. In Smith's story, the principal's son nearly ran the two girls over, and the principal had little sympathy for the way LGBTQ students were being treated in his building. The sad fact is the discrimination wasn't an isolated incident, and it didn't just come from the students. When it says here, when I told the principal that my civics teacher called me out in front of the whole class and said same sex marriage was pretty much the same thing as marrying a dog, the principal told me everyone has the right to their own opinion. The next day, the teacher apologized, but as I walked away, he said, Don't go marrying your dog. Oh, wow. So that's just an idea of Damn. some of the things that these students were going through. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel so bad for the student because, in a way, they're, they're powerless. Me as an adult, somebody would say something like that to me. I would turn back around and get to that person's face so hard. So, really? You want to see me growl here, buddy? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's pretty nasty. But it's so sad when they come to like their principal and be like, hey, this teacher is doing this. And they say, oh, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. You don't matter. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Kirsten. Thank you. Appreciate that. Very welcome. Yeah, three we, great stories. While we go and laugh that off into blasphemy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's take a quick pause and we'll be right back with our old friend, Del Rey. Ooh, looking forward to him. Yes. He's all in and waiting for us. So stay with us. Yeah. apart by a lack of reason. And I think it should be religion treated with ridicule and hatred and contempt. And I claim that right. In the morning. Hi everybody, this is Robert Stanley from the Right to Reason podcast. And if you subscribe now, you'll get free... 
about the broadcast at therighttoreason.com. I've heard people say that too much of anything is not good for you, baby. But I don't know about that. As many times as we love and we've shared love and made love, it doesn't seem to me like it's enough. It's just not enough for you. It's not enough. Oh, man. Oh, man. My darling, I can't get your love, Well, that music can only mean one thing. It's our old friend, the high priest of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster and our favorite psychologist, Dr. Del Rey. Thank you so much for joining us again on Left of the Valley. Good to be back, talking about my favorite subject. Oh, yeah. oh we've been, we, we always look forward to having you here, so welcome, welcome, welcome. You know, I think with this interview, Daryl turns out to be probably the most, uh, the guest we had most often on the show. I hope Because so. we love him so much. Yes, I know. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a close, it's a close call between him and Aaron and, and David Fitzgerald. It's like a three-way oh, race. Yeah. Yeah, I love David. I just saw David a few weeks ago. He was up here um, talking in Wichita, and I went down to see him. And I saw Aaron at the American Atheist Convention, and he's going to be my special guest at my party on Labor Day. There oh, we go. Wow. There we go. Yeah. Yep. Small world. Yeah, he's great. We 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 love him, and and Liliandra too. Both of them. They're they make a they're an awesome couple. We love we love talking to. He, she doesn't talk all that much, but we love them both. No, oh, we always have some, some new talk. She's she's cool. I like yeah, her. Yes, she is. She's very cool. When she says something, it, you, you open your ears and listen because mm-hmm. she's got something to say. Daryl, we always have I some, some yeah. new listeners, so I thought maybe you'd give us a quick bio as to who Daryl Ray is. Uh, well, I'm the I'm the founder of Recovering from Religion. I'm author of of a couple books: Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality, and The God Virus: How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture. And um, I do a lot of speaking around. I've got a lot of YouTube videos and my talks and stuff. But mainly I look at uh, uh, the cross-section between psychology and religion and religion and human sexuality. Those are my, those are my interests. Mm-hmm. And I also love to talk about masturbation, which I guess you guys want me to talk about today. But I didn't do it today, so I'm, I'm getting rusty already. I'm just saying. <laughs> just sad. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. <laughs> it really does. And of course, he is also the, he's also the host of a podcast section, uh, uh, secular sexuality, Secu- right? And that's right. a podcast that I highly recommend you guys listening to. Daryl, well, yep. today we want to talk about uh, why humans cheat. But before we do that, let's do a bit of, of homework here. And uh, because you, you're very involved with uh, re- uh, recovering from uh, from religion, and uh, you wanted to t- say a few words about that, so the mic is all yours, my friend. Go right ahead. Oh, well, I, we didn't have to do it up front, but uh, I, I don't care. Yeah, I just like to let people know if they need help dealing with the consequences of leaving religion, they can always call us or chat in at our recoveryfromreligion.org. Mm-hmm. We have volunteers waiting to talk to you on the phone, and we don't charge anything. We're not going to sell you anything. <laughs> no, no. And, uh, um, and we're also not selling got, atheism when we do that. No, we don't do, we don't deconvert. We're not. But, but if you're, if you're, 
we get we get chats, we get calls from ex-Muslims, ex-Mormons, ex-Baptists, ex-Catholics. Just was watching a chat uh, earlier this week from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, atheist in Pakistan wanted to talk to us and get some resources. And we also have local groups uh, scattered throughout the United States that can people can get together and meet face to face and and talk about you know the what the what it's like to have to deal with family or children or parents that try to push their religion on you. Yeah. After you've left, after you've left Baptist church or Catholic church or whatever. I think I think a lot of people don't realize that their own personal experience, even if it's something that's not overly dramatic, can actually help a lot of other people that are in a similar situation. Yeah, it's very cathartic to sit down and see a half dozen other people that are from different flavors of religion, and yet they experience the same thing. Mm-hmm. We help people deal with what Dr. Mar- Marlene Winnell calls religious trauma syndrome. And uh, we will refer people, we'll help them find a therapist with a secular therapy project. Mm-hmm. It's another component of recovering from religion. So if you need a good therapist that's not going to send you back to church or pray with you or do any that kind of bullshit, you can go to seculartherapy.org and register. And it's all confidential, it's all private, and you can find a therapist that will is highly trained and uses evidence-based methods. Mm-hmm. They're all vetted by, um, by a high, highly trained group of um, a team of, of therapists that are very experienced. Mm-hmm. So that's the recovering from religion. We're we're really really busy. We we've got we're expanding so fast and we can't keep track. I was looking at the statistics the other day. We are missing. I think we're missing somewhere around forty percent of all the chats or calls that come to us. And part of that's just because we don't have enough volunteers to catch all the chats and all the calls. Wow, really? But if you want to be yeah, if you want to be a volunteer, just uh, register and go to recoveringforreligion.org and fill up the application. We will train you. We'll, we'll teach you how to put everything together, and you just need a computer. You can even do it on your phone, uh, responding to chats and responding to phone calls. Yeah, it's, so, yeah, we need always looking for volunteers. Yeah, it's totally a worthwhile cause, and you know, help your fellow atheists or uh, or people coming out of their apostasy. It's it's, it's, to, it's totally worthwhile, right? I mean, these people need uh, to see that they're not alone. And you know, we say that over and over again: you're not alone. Many other people are going through the same thing you are. So, call us, chat. I'm serious. We get people on a daily basis saying, "I don't know what to do. I'm the only person in I'm the only person in Boise, Montana." And we can say, no, you're not. We've got 20 other people. We can connect you to those people. Mm-hmm, exactly. We've got groups in Omaha, Nebraska. There's, there's all, we can almost always help you find people that you can talk to. If you can't find anybody local, we can talk to us. We have entire groups dedicated. We've got ex-Mormon groups, ex-Christians, ex-Baptist, ex-Muslim, all those groups. And they can come in and talk to other people who've left whatever the specific religion is that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Perfect. Get in. Yeah. Perfect. I will put that so in. So that's, yeah, yeah, that was it. Okay, that's, perfect. That's Thanks for letting me talk about <laughs> No, not a problem, not a problem. So today we're, we're talking about why people cheat. And when I say cheat, I don't mean at a game of cards, because Nancy does that to me all the time. <laughs> she always has an ace up her sleeve. It's, it's just absolutely impressive. And we're playing strip poker. No. That's the worst part. Now don't give our don't you don't you give our secrets away about our poker games. I always end up losing. You know, I'm always with three, four women here. I always end up losing. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> that, that is interesting, Kevin. You uh, you aren't as smart as I thought you were. <laughs> oh. He can 
<laughs> he can be outmaneuvered pretty easily. <laughs> we still love him, though. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so Daryl, as a, as a psychologist who's who's studied human sexuality, give us a lowdown. Why? Why is it? Why do people cheat? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I, I think I think we want to turn that whole um, idea on its head, the, because humans are incredibly bad at monogamy. Monogamy is about the most unnatural invention humans have ever come up with. So if we're really, really, really bad at something, how can we expect people to follow it? Mm-hmm. There's never been a culture that tried monogamy that didn't utterly fail at it. The the evidence is pretty pretty strong the genetic evidence as well as the social evidence you look at right now the divorce rate is at least 50 percent and you know the you know this i'm gonna i'm gonna this is a trick question here but let's see if you can answer it do you know the single biggest cause of divorce marriage no (laughs) that's where i was going so so far the single you're close you're close but no cigar the single biggest cause of divorce is monogamy Whoa. Think about it. if you didn't have the imposition of monogamy on marriage mm-hmm. and people were able and free to negotiate alternative forms of relationships, we wouldn't need to have the divorce in the first place. We would probably see the divorce rate drop dramatically. Hmm. Now, I, I don't care what people choose. If they want to choose to be monogamous, that's fine. But I find it hard to believe that some 19, 20, even 25-year-old can make a decision that's gonna they're gonna stick with the rest of their life. That's asking a lot of any human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, like if I said, I want you to I want you to think about this real carefully and in age twenty five I want you to commit to eating steak every day of your life for the rest of your life. I mm, wonder if you could stick to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long would it take for you to start sneaking in a salad here and there? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, or getting or getting some pork once in a while, or chicken. Yeah, you you would cheat. Most human beings would cheat, and that's that's what I'm talking about here. That monogamy is the biggest cause of cheating. Now, because people are making decisions that they can't stick to, but they've been programmed from child, literally from birth. You're being programmed. There's only one person for you. You have to find the right person. You find your soulmate. This whole notion of soul is brought into the idea of monogamy that there's only one soul mate and I I mean this in the mystical sense a soul has a mate and people believe that when you how many times have you heard some 25 year old person getting ready to get married and they say I found my soul mate yeah well isn't that interesting your soul mate just happened to live 25 miles away from you went to the same high school you did or went to the same college you did and you found your soul mate what if your soulmate was in Delhi, India, and you never got to Delhi? You know, you'd you'd screw up. You would never find your soulmate. But somehow, soulmates are always within um, walking distance of where you went to high school. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> that, what are the odds so out of seven you, billion people? Right? What are the odds? You're right. It's so right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and they also happen to be the same race as me and the same religion as me. Uh, and they've got a, roughly the same education as I do, and they grew up in a family that was similar to mine. It's a, it's amazing how soulmates can be found. 
so that that seemed to match us in such uh, so it's so in so many levels of detail mm-hmm. when i think if you if there was such a thing as a soul and there were soulmates on this planet they wouldn't always be within 25 miles of where you grew up or or 100 miles of where you went to college or something like that mm-hmm. it's it, it would be your soulmate would be in uh, the north slope of alaska somewhere or or in moscow and you, you would never find your soulmate mm-hmm. so why do people cheat is is really i think the wrong question i think why do people stay monogamous there are a few people probably no more than no more than 30 percent probably far less actually of the people on this planet who start monogamous relationships stay that way mm-hmm. and and by that i mean how many even people let me just give you a great illustration. I have I had four grandparents. Both my grandparents uh, were married for 50 years. And I can't name four more miserable people in, on the planet than my four grandparents. Yes, yes. They, they were sexually frustrated. They were embarrassed at the word sex. We are pretty sure that, that neither one of them had more than sex more than three times because that's all the kids they had. That's sad. <laughs> well, we kind of joked about that, but we're not we're not sure we couldn't we might I might be right and and let me tell you this this is hits home for me in a very interesting way it was it was only about well when I grew up I had uh, this is relevant to the whole cheating thing, but it won't sound like it first. My grandmother, her name was Pearl, she was married to a man named Thompson in nineteen twenty eight within uh, ten months. We're not even sure if it was that many months. My dad comes along, and within a few months after my dad was born, she she divorced Thompson mm. and remarried a man named Ray. That's how I get the name Ray. Mm. My real name should be Thompson, but but it's not. It's Ray. So this is really interesting because in 1928 and 29, it was really difficult to get divorced that quickly. It, I mean, I don't even know how, I don't think anybody, even a movie star would have trouble getting divorced that quickly. So that's what we were told. But my grandmother went to her grave saying she was, that the only grandfather I knew, Ray, was my real grandfather. She never admitted she was divorced. Now, why would my grandmother go to her grave never admitting she was divorced? We loved her whether she was divorced or not. It made no difference to us. So years years go by. I grew up thinking my grandmother um, was married to this Thompson guy and then got divorced and married to the Ray guy. And uh, my ex-wife starts doing some genealogy on our family. And just three weeks ago, we find out my grandmother had never gotten divorced from Thompson until 1941. So she was living with my grandfather, the one I've always thought of as my grandfather, for 11 or 12 years, telling us they were married, telling everybody they were married when they weren't. So she lied about being divorced. She lied about living with somebody she wasn't married to. We found the divorce papers in 1941. So from 28, from 29 to 41, she was living with Mr. Ray. So you think about that. She cheated, but she never she never admitted it. She went to her grave never admitting that she cheated. And not only that, she cheated for 12 years, living with somebody 
I mean, today we would look at somebody living with somebody they're not married to and just wouldn't be bad an eye. But that was terribly scandalous back then. And the focus of all that, of course, was she was a fundamentalist Christian. Yes. And as a fundamentalist Christian, she was doomed to hell if she cheated, if she didn't live to somebody she wasn't married to. Oh, and my grandfather turned out ultimately to be a country church preacher. So you can't admit that you lived in sin for 12 years because then your grandkids would might want to live in sin. Over and over again, you get this pattern of behavior. My grandmother's just one illustration of it. Of people being normal, natural human beings. She was probably in a relationship that might have been abusive. We're not positive. So rather than admit it was abusive and file for divorce and get out in an honorable way, she just left. Well, that's by definition cheating because she's still married for the next 12 years to her first husband. So I don't know. That's one reason why people cheat is they get stuck in relationships and they don't know how to get out. Mm. And you see that a lot. I I see that a lot in my uh, work with people who are stuck in abusive relationships and they don't they just don't know how to get out of them yeah the, the social pressure to conform to, I mean you were talking about your, your grandparents you said I, I don't know I can't think of four more miserable people yet you know if they come to you and they go into public into the public and they say yeah we've been married for 50 years that is usually something to be admired in our society oh yeah right they were yeah it, it is something to be admired and on my mother's side we gave my gave him a 50th wedding anniversary, and it was all good to go, and they loved it. But on my dad's side, that's the one that they were missing 12 years of marriage. They couldn't produce a, uh, a marriage certificate. Mm. Well, we're not sure they were ever actually officially married. Wow. We do have proof that she got divorced from her first husband, but we don't know that, that the man I knew as my grandfather ever got married. Oh, and, and we only found out about 1995 that my grandfather who supposedly adopted my dad never adopted him my grandfather didn't even know he'd adopted my dad because my grandmother lied to him um my grandmother wasn't a very pleasant person in many ways <laughs> boy all the, all the secrets that came out must be interesting the family secrets for the family to family. deal with them all yeah, it it is. Well, thankfully, it, it has no direct consequence in my life, but it does illustrate how much religious shame governs people's behavior. And she spent she spent an entire lifetime feeling the shame, mm-hmm. and hiding it, and adding lie on top of lie uh, about her life. And she had a wonderful life. She had she'd done some interesting things. And my grandfather was a great guy. He was a great grand. He was a very good grandfather for me. Even though he never officially adopted my dad, and my name should not, my name officially should not be Ray. It should be, be Thompson. But we only find this out after everybody's dead. <laughs> oh, wow. So, uh, so is, is it possible? I, you- I, I'm, I'm telling, I'm <laughs> telling you this partly because I just found this out about three weeks ago. Oh, no, that's fascinating. <laughs> that's thanks, very, thanks for sharing a, yes, thanks for a, sharing a really good story. Is it is it possible your grandmother thought, well, you know, once the seeds are planted, you throw away the package? <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I I can't follow. Uh, that's that's beyond my logic. There. <laughs> Sorry about. That. <laughs> this this. Well, this. she did throw away the package. That's that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> this, so why do people why do people cheat? 
there's a lot of things I wanted to talk about around that, and not just my own personal story. I'm just guessing. You know, when people say uh, my my ancestors go back to King Henry VIII or something like that, mm-hmm. the evidence shows that at least, probably on average, at least one one out of every four generations, people are there's some hanky panky going on, mm-hmm. and so your great 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 grandmother fooled around with with somebody else and that's the genes you're really related to not the guy that she thought was the grandfather and there's there's an interesting statistic that most people might not realize that only 40% of men have ever reproduced genetically 80% of women have reproduced and just think about that we know this genetically you can go back and look where are the where are the genes coming from and you can see that uh Men reproduce only 40% of the time. Women reproduce 80% of the time. So that just says, interesting, isn't it? Why Why would that be? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, boys die in infancy a lot more than girls do. Mm-hmm. Before they become adolescents and reproduce a lot more than girls do. Men die in professions a lot more than women do. So you get a birth rate of, say, 101 to 104 men for every woman, and then by the time they get to reproductive age, and I'm talking throughout history, I'm not talking right now, only 90% of those men are still around. Mm. Well, and then you get the notion that women tend to um, gravitate towards dominant men and, and want to reproduce with the ones that are most wealthy or the most have the highest status. So it's really interesting to see that women throughout history have cheated as much as men have. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get this notion that men are the ones that do all the cheating. Well, who are they cheating with? Yeah, that's, exactly. that's the question. And nobody nobody uh, talks about that. There was a psychologist up in Toronto did a study. It's been a, close to 20 years ago he did this study. It was a fascinating study about women and men and you know how they see themselves and how, how they cheat or or they have sex and what they found was it, they they put three different conditions three with men and three with women and the first condition was you walk into a room and uh, you sit down in front of an interviewer and they ask a bunch of questions and you answer the questions some of those questions dealt directly with cheating uh, and dire- directly with how many sex partners have you had? Well, women, and I'm just going to pull some numbers off the top of my head because I don't have the research in front of me. The average woman's 25, 30-year-old woman said, I've had three or four sex partners in my life. And the average man, man would say, I've had 10 sex partners in my, my life at the same age. Well, then they had a second condition. They would bring women in. And men in, and instead of having an interviewer sitting across the desk, they would have a, a technician hand a piece of paper and say, "Go into that room over there and fill this out. Mm-hmm. When you come back, just hand it to me." So the second condition is a real life human being, and you're answering exactly the same questions that were asked in the first, but you're not facing the person. So as the women are leaving, they hand it. When the men are leaving, they hand it, and the women's say, well, I've had five sex partners in my life as opposed to three or four, or I've had five or six, and the men say I've had ten sex partners. In other words, the men did not change the number of sex partners they had in in what they reported. 
The third condition was most interesting, and that's when both men and women were brought into the same office, and they were put set down in a chair, and a lie detector was put on them, mm. and they were asked exactly the same questions. Now, in this situation, you you think a lie detector can detect if you're lying or not. So what they found was the average woman said, I have had 10 sex partners in my wife life, and the average man said, I've had 10 sex partners in my life. So in other words, when women thought they were could be caught lying, they gave they gave an they reported the same number of sex partners as the men did. Mm. So this just tells us that there's a lot of pressure in our culture for women to yes. underreport the amount of sex they have, the amount of times they've cheated. And we see this throughout all sorts of uh, research on divorce and cheating and stuff. That um, women women are cheating just as much as men, but they can't admit it. They can't talk openly about it. And they escape the guilt and shame that our culture puts on women for doing that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. And men are not guiltified and shame. Men are given a... Oftentimes, men are given the benefit of the doubt. Oh, well, you know, he's just a man. That's just the way men operate. Yeah. And that's not correct. It's the way humans operate. How long ago and it's was... It's our culture that... Pardon? No, no, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. When, I'll ask my question with you. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Well, it's just that our, our culture skews these who's, who's doing the cheating. And I think it's important for us to start talking out loud about it and why people do it. And once you're in a relationship, if you are for sex, I've got another thing I'll talk about in a minute, but that's kind of what I wanted to say there. Yeah. Interest, I think that's fascinating research. It is, but my question, gonna, my question was, how is that um, current, um, recent research, or does that research go back a ways on the one you it, just quoted? I think this particular research was done, or I can't remember the exact date, around 2001, I think. Oh, so it's, fairly, it's fairly current. I was going to say, I wonder if there's any difference, you know, as the new generation comes up and there seems to be less restrictions, less stress on multiple partners than there, than there were a generation ago. Well, I have seen a huge shift to, to um, notions or ideas and behaviors like polyamory. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, that's been remarkable to me how much polyamory has taken over right here in Kansas City we've we have a polyamory group that started with maybe 10 or 15 people 6 7 years ago and there are over 1000 members now oh my gosh wow. that's incredible yeah and and it's not just Kansas City but i think i think Kansas City kind of leads for some reason i don't know why we're ahead in that area there's nothing else to do because we're in the middle of the bible yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> So I yeah I think I think you're Nancy you're you're kind of right that there's been a a shift towards more openness about being honest about how we have relationships and negotiating relationship. If you think about it in our culture, when you say I do, you've just signed a contract that has about <laughs> a thousand invisible ink clauses on it. Mm-hmm. The main invisible ink clause is I ain't going to have sex with anybody else for the rest of my life. Is that a realistic expectation of of normally sexed humans? I mean, a, a human with an average, even an average sexual drive, uh, libido. Uh, and I don't care what your your gender is, your sexual preference. 
if you've got a libido that's even average, you're going to have a hard time sticking with that. Yes. Yeah. So, so do you really? So, to, so, so do you think that if marriage did not include fidelity and it included permissiveness um, to have various sex partners at will uh, from both the man and the woman, that the divorce rate would be less? Or do you think the divorce rate would remain the same only because people, be, but people wouldn't be divorcing because of cheating, they would be divorcing because of the, the, the underlying causes of cheating, which might be abuse or dissatisfaction yeah. or, or different religions or whatever Would there ever be such a thing as marriage in that kind of would there ever be marriage? Yeah. Well, there's an interesting question in and of itself. The, the research has shown pretty strongly for the last 20 years that the, the stronger government services are to women, the less people marry. I went to Sweden in 19, I was there about 1999. I went there and stayed for a week with some friends. And we visited these these friends. We visited their children, their grandchildren, and several other families in the course of the week. We were ga- their guests for some family reasons. And what what blew my mind was I didn't meet anybody who was formerly married that was younger than 40 years old. Everybody below 40 that I met was living together, but they were not married. Hmm. And you see this especially in Scandinavian and Northern European countries where the social security system is so robust and the healthcare system that women don't need women don't need men. If if the man doesn't stick around, the woman still can support herself and her kids, get good health care. So the marriage rate in Sweden is amazingly low. I mean, something like twenty percent. It it's I just read something recently, and I think that was the rate somewhere around twenty percent for marriage in Sweden. And it's, it goes clear back to social services and support social support. I think that's what you would see, and and I really think that's a big reason why the religious right is so scared of things like uh, Obamacare, yes, or, or or social services that look like Sweden, because it, it undermines the church's ability to coerce people into giving money to them, and their ability to misuse that money. They always talk about how inefficient. Social services are, well, let me tell you, churches are the, far more inefficient than <laughs> yes. any social service. See, a church takes 90, for every dollar you give to a church, you they don't give more than, absolutely no no church gives more than 10 cents on the dollar in actual human services. Now, they will brag about their homelessness program or, yeah. you know, or their school programs or whatever, or their missionary programs, but you look at how much money goes into a church and how much money is actually done to help dig a well, cure a disease, get a vaccine. It's it's abysmal. I did a study, and I don't know if your li- listeners have read my book, The God Virus, but in The God Virus, I looked at the actual dollars of several churches, and what I came up with was 5%. Mm-hmm. Five cents out of every dollar, dollar actually goes to any kind of services. Well, I don't care how bad the government is. It's giving you more service than five five cents on the dollar. And that's what churches are afraid of, and that's it will undermine marriage. It will undermine. I mean, marriage is the way you, you propagate the religion. If marriage starts going downhill, if people don't stay faithful to each other, then 
that means the religion loses its influence. Mm-hmm. That's why monogamy is so so important to Christianity and 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 other religions, of course. But there's other reasons for cheating. Uh, let me not go there just yet. But does that answer your question so far? Absolutely. Oh yeah, you're giving a lot of lot of okay. insight, a, a, a lot of thoughts that you know I, I I've never really considered before. So thanks for bringing it all. Yeah, up. And, and this goes back to like Doctor Ray was saying there about churches not being efficient on the dollar. Yeah. Let's go back to the statistic I was saying. You know, like uh, the UN estimating it would cost between thirty billion and fifty billion dollars a year to feed the world worldwide, and the churches just in the United States are making about eighty billion dollars a year. So if they really were right. about saving people, it would have been done just with the churches in the states, and that's only five percent of the world population. Exactly. So if the, if we still have poverty today, it's not because we can't get rid of it; it's because we don't want to get rid of it. Exactly. Poverty serves a function. Exactly. And it keeps the churches in business. Yep. Really so there's another concept that I think is really interesting. It's it's almost as interesting as some of that research I mentioned earlier. This comes out of a concept. Um, called sociosexual orientation. I wrote about it in my book, Sex and God. It's been around since the, uh, it's, a, it's a simple, you can go online and just Google it, sociosexual orientation. And it's a nine-item questionnaire, about as simple as you get, nine items, broken down into three groups. I actually give this survey in my talks. Um, I'm giving it in two weeks when I talk at Oasis. I'll hand it out and let everybody do it. I've done it when I've spoken at Skepticon. I've, I've done it at uh, other at, at a, when I've spoken at American Atheist. It's a very, very simple instrument that, that's been around and tested on 48 different countries and I think 25 or 6 different languages. Mm-hmm. So it's highly validated. It's, it's well validated. And it, it's based on a new con- a concept that's it's fairly new. Most people probably don't recognize it or won't recognize it. But let me go back and explain what what it is using personality variables. Um, any of you folks have a dog? I've got two. You've got two. Okay, what are they? Um, breed or what, size what, what or they're, they're they're two they're two little dogs. One's a Brussels Griffon and the other one is a mixed Chihuahua and Rat Terrier. They're, they're, they're cats okay. with the wrong personality. Yeah. <laughs> Let me give you a test here. Okay. If I said a German Shepherd, could you describe the personality of a German Shepherd? Could I describe the, the personality yeah. of a German Shepherd? Loyal. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'd say it can easily be trained for protection. Uh, extremely intelligent. Um, okay. Stop. Uh, stop. Okay. That's, that's good enough. How about Chihuahua? Describe the personality of a Chihuahua. Oh my God! Besides, I'm not. <laughs> and it it depends depends on the Chihuahua. It's sometimes neurotic, but can be very sweet and uh, and loving to the owner. Yeah. But barky. Uh, barky, neurotic, loving. Okay. <laughs> depends on the Chihuahua. I've known I've known all kinds For of. For a second, there, I thought you would describe my ex. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say I, between people and dogs, you can you know you get the same variability. Barky, neurotic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that totally sounds like depends yeah. on their environment so, and their the genes. Reason, the reason I asked that question is because many many people think that environment is the primary determinant of personality, but that's not true of dogs. And the DNA that causes a dog to have a certain personality characteristic is the same DNA that humans do. Mm. 
So I try to help people understand that if somebody ever said you you act just like your dad or something like that, they're probably saying you're, the genes your dad gave you make you act in a similar fashion to your dad. Or you act just like your uncle or you've got your grandfather's temperament. When people say those kinds of things, they're really revealing the genetic influence in personality. And what we now know is something right at 49 or 50% of personality is genetically determined. Wow. And the evidence is so obvious. The evidence is so obvious when you think about dogs. No German shepherd learned how to be that way. He was born that way learns how to be barky they're just barky the day they're born practically <laughs> so there there's 50 percent genetic which leaves 50 percent to be environmentally influenced in one way or the other i won't go on that side now now so we know for example that some people are really extroverted and some people are really introverted and they usually are that way for the rest of their life somebody who's born super super introverted is never going to be the the uh, party animal like me, hmm. and the the person who's super super um, extroverted is probably never going to become the person who cowers in the corner and never talks to anybody at a party. Now people can move. I'm, I'm not saying people can't move across that spectrum a bit, but they never go from one end to the other. That's just really really rare. No German Shepherd becomes a Chihuahua. <laughs> And no chihuahua becomes a German shepherd. <laughs> Despite the size, they still don't change their personalities. Well, so these researchers found um, some years ago that a similar thing is characteristic of humans with respect to sexuality. And they called it the sociosexual orientation. And it's a spectrum. And what they found was some humans are much more adventurous in their sexual orientation, and other people are much, much more conservative, and it seems to be genetic. And the way we know this is because we can um, look at twins, identical twins, give them this survey, and find out what how they express their sexuality 10, 20, 30 years later. I mean, the test has been around since 1990, so we've got, uh, and it's been used in many cultures and many languages, so we, we can really pair up a lot of people and see how they express their sexuality. So if let's say that you are you're non-religious, just non-religious and uh, you marry somebody that, that is non-religious, both of you are non-religious and uh, you have a high socio-sexual orientation index and they have a low one, it means you are going to be very interested in in swinging from the chandeliers when you have sex or <laughs> Or trying lots of different positions, and you want to get the Kama Sutra out every week and find out if there's a new position you can take. So that would be what a high person who scores high in that area is. And somebody who scores lower, low, the person who scores low is going to say, you know, missionary once a month is fine with me, or missionary once a week is fine with me. I don't need all these other things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like the difference between extrovert and introvert only it's it's associated with sexuality now i see this a lot that people get married to each other who if if i could give them this little survey i would find that one of the two of them likes me in from the chandeliers and the other one doesn't 
And that is a fundamental difference. I wish people would consider this notion before they get married. Yes. Because they're asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. In, in the sense that we, I will guarantee you someone who scores really high is going to get very bored with a vanilla sex life mm. pretty quick. Inside of once the new relationship energy wears off, once the, you know, the glaring stimulation of uh, you know, of, of young love wears off, you're gonna find yourself bored. Mm-hmm. And we have this notion of soulmates that, well, we found our soulmate. Yeah, okay, there were a soulmate for two years. Now you're bored with that soulmate. What are you gonna do? Find another soulmate? I have literally heard people say, "I found my soulmate in my third marriage." <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm. I've and they also said it about their first and their second marriage. So where's this soulmate thing? If you can have three different soulmates, why don't you just marry them all? You know, or have have a soulmate of the week. You know, and rotate or something. I don't know. So, <laughs> so going so going back to going back to your original question about what the major part the major cause of divorce is, you could almost say chastity. Well, yeah, it's it's this notion that one sex partner for life, it puts chains on human behavior. And when people are chained down, they tend to want to escape those chains. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, think about this. Listen to all the damn music on the radio over and over again. You're mine. You're mine forever. I belong to you. You belong to me. How many songs have that message? Yeah. And then... And then you get Tom Jones singing, please release me, let me go. You know that song, right? I hate, but that one is a good illustration. I'm chained down and I'm ready to get out of here, folks. Mm-hmm. Well, when people start feeling like they've been put into a, a box and they, they have no freedom of movement, the longer they're in there, the harder it is. There's a really interesting research just came out yesterday. I know I saw it, a friend of mine posted it, Dr. David Lay, a great guy, good person to interview someday. You might like him. Yeah, absolutely. Not as well as as me, maybe, but you'll like him. He's really good, good stuff. (laughs) He posted this research. He didn't do this research, but he posted it, and what he found was, and get get ready, you'll be shocked by this notion, the more religious a person was, the more they're consumed by their religious fantasies and ideas. With yeah. guilt around those ideas. Does this shock you? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's three different studies looking at teenagers, and they're asking the teenagers, how religious are you? And then they're asking, how disturbed are you by your uh, sexual fantasies? And they found that there's a direct correlation between religiosity and and being disturbed around fantasies. And that's where we get this whole notion of sex addiction, because mm-hmm. the mo- most the people who are most self-identify as sex addicts are religious people. Non-religious people don't see themselves as sex addicts; they see themselves as normal humans. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Oh yeah, so, so I've, it's, it's, so that it's, go ahead. I've even met some people that you know that's exactly what they ask. They used to self-diagnose themselves as sex addict, and I say, who diagnosed you as a sex addict? Uh, well, my. My mom, my priest, my... Yeah, okay. <laughs> they're not professionals. <laughs> exactly. Right. They're they're professionals at, you know, fucking around people's brains is what they are. Because <laughs> exactly. there's, no, there's no diagnosis for sex addiction. No, exactly. Anybody that says there is, 
doesn't know what they're talking about. I think we talked about this on this very podcast before, haven't we? We certainly have. We certainly have. Yeah, I thought talked about it. So then, would you say that um, since chastity and since not understanding the different levels, each other's different levels of of uh, social sexual orientation, that it would be a good thing for couples who are engaged or thinking about getting married or becoming partners that they uh, uh, go through some of the surveys or the counseling or find out a little bit more about their sexual uh, sexual orientation and preferences before they they make the um, uh, before they make a contract a marriage contract to get married mm, good question here's the deal like I said earlier when you say I do you're signing a contract you don't even know all the clauses in what I advocate is let's be intentional about what we're signing. And I would advocate that people sit down and talk through all the possible aspects of marriage, including how sexuality is going to be expressed, and learn to negotiate. I To think that a marriage is going to be identical 10 or 20 years down the line is absurd. Mm-hmm. Finances change. Having children changes. You're going to – and your own sexual expression – People in people's libidos go up and they go down, and uh, there's people need permission to renegotiate relationships and still stay married. Yes. Uh-huh. You know, I am now I have now worked so many with so many people over the years who said we don't want to get divorced. We got kids, we love each other, but we need to renegotiate. We don't know how to do that. So I've been I've actually done a lot of coaching and helping people renegotiate their relationships that's one of my current jobs is i do a lot of coaching with people and that's that's another broadcast that's a a, (laughs) well it is how do you renegotiate a 20-year marriage how do you tell your wife or your husband look i love you but i'd really like some outside sexual stimulation because in our culture we we identify that as cheating Mm mm-hmm and honest about it because we don't allow marriages to be renegotiated mm-hmm. which to me is absurd no business on the planet would hold somebody to it you as a businessman would never sign a contract for 20 years you have no idea what the business is going to look like in 20 years so why would you sign? business people don't do that why do we do that in our marriage contracts That's a good and the other thing is people are living so much longer now we have no template for 50-year marriages. They were so rare. In 1900, for somebody to live 50 years was harder than somebody living 90 years or 100 years now. Mm-hmm. So it's just absurd. We have no rules, no template for that kind of lifespan. We need to renegotiate marriages and not make it a shame. It's not a failed marriage. I was married for 18 years to my first wife. I do not consider that a failed marriage. I had two great kids came out of it. I still enjoy my ex-wife. She's a great person, great friend, great grand, great grandmother, and great mother. So, how is that a failed marriage? To me, that's bullshit to say people are fa- fail at marriage. Mm-hmm. No, you failed at living up to the expectations of a culture that has unreasonable expectations. That's what you failed at. And, and congratulations, the rest of the planet does too. Even people who stay married for fifty years, I'll guarantee you, 
the majority of those 50-year marriages had some cheating going on somewhere. <laughs> There's uh, too much evidence. Too much evidence for that. I'm saying. Yeah. So thanks for asking that question, Nancy. You got me. You put. You pushed my button there. <laughs> I get going on that. Oh, but you. But, but it's, it's such a delight to to hear your answers and to give us, uh, you know, a, a, a different way of thinking about things to make uh, things to make to make life a little better, to make re- relationships much richer. So the sociosexual orientation index. Get online, take it if you want, score it. It's. Um, I think it explains a lot of human behavior. That some people are more. For example, I go out. I score a 7.2 on the social sexual orientation index, and I'm fairly extroverted. But that that's not related. You can extroversion is not related to the score you get on social sexual. But I'm just saying I I score high in that area. I score high in SSRI, mm-hmm. and I'm also very adventurous. I climb mountains. I go up and climb mountains every year in Colorado. I can. I don't know too many people that climb mountains, but I do because mm-hmm. I like the thrill. I like the, you know, like the adrenaline I get from hitting the top of that mountain. Yes. Social sexual orientation. If you score high, you you probably also score high in adventurousness. Not just sexual adventurousness, but other kinds of adventurousness. And we know it's hard to keep somebody that's adventurous down. They don't generally like desk jobs. They do poorly at at uh, tasks that require them to concentrate for days and weeks on end at the same thing. They need stimulation. They want to get out. They want to explore the world and find new things. Mm-hmm. And yet we know that you aren't we glad we've got accountants that will stay and focus on your taxes for weeks on end mm-hmm. and never want to get out, never want to go climb a mountain or bungee jump anywhere. They just love staying in their office analyzing your taxes. I'm very glad they do. But I don't want to be an accountant that analyzes taxes. Yeah, I think I think, I think the average person I think the average person falls in between the two, from the adventurous to the routine guy, but it doesn't know exactly yeah. which proportions there they fill in, right? It's it's a bell curve. You're yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Most people are going to score a four, a five, a six. Most people are, just yeah. like in an intelligence. You know, if you do an IQ, most people score within uh, ninety to one hundred and ten. That's where the majority. And majority of the people are going to score within that bell curve. Nancy scored a 12 on that. So let's think of, huh? Nancy scored a 12 on that, oh, that oh, test. Oh. Well, there you go. There you, you, go. Should, you should see her on the chandelier. Plugged <laughs> 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 in. I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hey, I'm so used to being the the target of all of this. I just it, it's fine with me. <laughs> oh. It's fine. Doctor Ray, thank you so much for giving us again some great thoughts on 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 human psychology and human sexuality. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and your books, where can they find you? Well, they can go to Amazon and find uh, the God Virus or Sex and God. They can uh, contact me on Facebook. I'm on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm at Dr. D. Ray 132 on Twitter. Dr. D. Ray, D R D R A Y 132. And I'm just Daryl Ray on uh, on Facebook. I'm at almost at my 5,000 best friends limit. So you need to join the three to 3,000 get on there. I don't. I don't generally friend people on Facebook unless I I met them face to face. Yeah, and that's why you you guys are 
Fuck. That's why we're close friends, and we'll, we'll have to it's somewhere, somewhere met sometime. Yeah. Exactly, Doctor Reed. Thank you so much for all for all the for all this today. I certainly appreciate that. Uh, before yeah. I let you go, though, I gotta have you say, "Hi, I'm Doctor Daryl Ray, and I took a left to the valley." Hi, I'm Doctor Daryl Ray, and I left, and I what? <laughs> I left the valley. I I I didn't catch I didn't catch that last part. Sorry, Kevin. I am left. <laughs> I left at the valley. I left it at the valley. I'm supposed to leave at the valley. I don't know what it is. Oh, good that's enough. Good. good enough. You get you get the award of the year, Daryl. And that was, of course, Doctor Del Rey. Oh man, he's got so Kidding many facets. Kidding love this man. God I damn. Know. I know. He should be a chandelier salesman. You know, oh. <laughs> well, didn't you buy the chandelier from him? Well, is it pre-tested or do you have to... <laughs> <laughs> it's Nancy approved. <laughs> yeah, it's got the Na- Nancy stamp of approval on it. Absolutely. That's right. And, and this this episode falls so much in line with the one we had a couple of weeks ago with uh, Dr. Hector Garcia. Who was recommended to us by Dr. Mm-hmm. Del Rey. If you go back into the archives and listen to the show about Alpha God, then you start understanding the psychology behind, you know, monogamy and, and cultural religion imposing these these things on our society. It really, really opens up the, your mind as to where we are as a species and how we got here. And then to start, you start questioning, is that the right way to go? There are so many permutations when it comes to sexual orientation that, you know, I, 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 my mind is open that, you know, that if you allow the different relationships in your life, there is a possibility that the, um, uh, the divorce rate will be lower. But I, I don't know. It, I, I think it's, it's certainly, certainly worth thinking, thinking about and experimenting with. Yeah, but absolutely. not everybody, not everybody's going to want to experiment with it. You heard it from Nancy. Go out there and experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, ladies, for joining me on the show with me today, and thank you to our audience for being with us today. And uh, <clears throat> you can follow us at leftofthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter at LETV Podcast. Follow Dr. Del Rey. I highly, highly, highly recommend him and you'll finally you'll see why he's one of our favorite guests you know what we really do need to do a road trip to Kansas I really want to go there oh yeah to party with Dr. Ray I would you know and do yeah. a long weekend thing we need like, to do let me get my passport and then we can go oh we should, we should totally should let's plan that for next year <sighs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure. yeah, we'll have to ask him. We can't make tonight, so we're no, gonna... <laughs> no. <laughs> He's invited us several times to his ranch, so we, yeah. we need we'll to. We'll just have to just show up one time and be like, hi. Oh, he would be so shocked by that. That'd be amazing. That'd be yeah. amazing. Um, you can send us an email at leftvalley at outlook.com. Send your complaints to, or your chandelier <laughs> to Nancy on the third floor. <laughs> Uh, coming up next week. Don't make it too high because I'm a short little girl. So. <laughs> you need to buy a stepladder too. Yeah, exactly. Next week we have his rawness. Arn Raw is coming. He's back, and we'll be having a great chat with him. Of course. I'm so excited! I missed the last episode that he was on. And then on the ninth, we'll be talking to our, uh, a couple of podcasters called from a podcast called Odd Atheist Friends. Uh-huh. That'll be fun. 
And then on the 16th, we'll be talking to Thomas Whisbrook. He's the guy who has the Holy Kool-Aid channel on uh, YouTube. And his podcast is called Here and Now. Oh. So he's going to be interesting. And of course, on the 23rd, we'll be talking to the legendary Seth Andrews and the Velvety Voice. Mm-hmm. And we'll also be talking to Bernard Lambeau and about his book called The Covenant. Oh, boy. And also, I'm going to have a one-on-one with an old friend, Robert Stanley. Okay. We're just going to do a behind-the-scene thing. So oh. If you want to see the behind-the-scene, how people actually are when they're not on the mic, oh, we'll do something like that. Ah, perfect. I think that's all we got for now. Is it? Let's see. Oh, no, I got something else here. For July, we got Scott Marshall and talk about Love Explained. Ooh, that'll be interesting. Yeah. I think we should reinvite also Dr. Dell right next time for uh, what we were talking about there. Is his, uh, about... What was that? <laughs> Yeah, some of the surveys and, and, yes. and negotiating. Yes, that's marriage. it. Negotiating, yes, negotiating, that's the one. negotiating your marriage contract. There you go. If well, you it's wish. really so important just to have that communi- that open communication with your partner. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Thank Kevin. you sir. Thank you. You may go swing on your chandelier now. Go in peace. <laughs> Until next time. Teaching them to respect them, respect them, fuck that. The system is broke down, working backwards in the only action or tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them. The parties of God's hands are bloodstained, millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name. And let me take a sec, don't mean it sounds so hateful, but I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful that many atheists are told to be quiet. A non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist.